2022 was a devastating year for our planet. From floods in Pakistan that affected over 33 million people, to unprecedented droughts in East Africa, which likewise impacted tens of millions, the violent forces of climate change were on full display. It's little wonder why, in March 2023, through their sixth assessment report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, noted with urgency that climate change has caused substantial damages and increasingly irreversible losses, and going further to note that the extent and magnitude of climate change impacts are larger than estimated in previous assessments. Even with notable progress being made in tackling climate change and with various adaptive measures being legislated to help vulnerable communities, the world still finds itself in the position of not doing enough. The impacts of climate change are here. They are undeniable and upending. And what about the United States? Internationally, the Biden administration has brought the U.S. back into the Paris Agreement and domestic policies, at least for now, have also been passed that have position climate change closer to the forefront of American political consciousness. Although this is relative progress, is it enough? Conventions and conferences are undeniably important, but they are, of course, nothing new. So are the various international agreements on climate change signed throughout the years and the 27 different United Nations Climate Change Conference of the Parties sufficient to deal with the devastation we are seeing now? What does a robust international climate framework look like? How do we move towards addressing the fact that it is countries in the non-Western world, particularly developing non-Western countries, that are forced to shoulder the brunt of the worst effects of climate change? This podcast series, Climate Change, America and the World, will attempt to provide answers to those questions and more. Over the next six episodes, we will bring together analysis on the far-ranging impacts of climate change from experts including academics, journalists, and practitioners from different fields. The first three episodes will focus on international dimensions of climate change, discussing topics of global responsibility, refugee creation, and the intersection between climate change and international conflict. The final three episodes will examine how climate change is politicized and felt within America's own borders, examining issues of climate change and race, the economic impacts of climate change, and the future of climate change discourse in the U.S. and elsewhere. Our approach is to be diverse in our consideration of how climate change is felt by different people in different places. Although we are bringing to the fore America's own responsibility and response to one of the greatest challenges of our time, the series is not only about America, it's about America and the world. We kick off the series by speaking to two guests on how climate change disproportionately affects developing countries or countries in the so-called Global South. We discuss the role of historical and present-day emissions and the case for financial compensation owed to developing countries shouldering the impacts of climate change. Christopher Callahan is a PhD student at Dartmouth College, where he analyzes the economic impacts of climate change. Professor Catherine Hostetler is a professor of international development and the head of the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science. In this episode, we will bring both of the research together to try and uncover the roots of our contemporary climate crises. 
The fact that most countries in the global south continue to play a relatively minor role in the global emissions of greenhouse gases but feel the impact of climate change the greatest is an established fact. The reasons for this are immensely complex, but they also have to do with simple geography. In a paper published in 2022 titled National Attribution of Historical Climate Damages, Christopher Callahan articulates the links between patterns of climate damages and patterns of inequality finding that the United States is in fact responsible for trillions of dollars of climate change-related damages globally. My research has shown that the risks from climate change, at least in the context of rising temperatures, are greatest where it's already warm. So in tropical regions, people are closer to what you might call a danger zone of extreme heat. You're closer to physiological thresholds that make it difficult for people to cool themselves by sweating or work outside productively. And so in places that are already warm, even small increases in temperatures can drive both very severe heat waves and very severe economic and social and health effects from those heat waves. Critically, the global pattern of temperature also coincides with a global pattern of inequality. Nations that are in the tropics are disproportionately warmer and poorer than nations in the mid-latitudes, United States, Europe, Russia. These are larger economies relative to, to economies in the tropics. And so this pattern of global temperature that shapes the risks of climate change also coincides and is interacts with this pattern of global development that shapes people's ability to adapt to climate risks or remain vulnerable to those risks. That study tackled this issue of national responsibility for climate damages. And the key there is that we are not just looking at national responsibility for emissions or global temperature change, which had been long understood, but connecting that to the downstream economic impacts of warming. So saying a country emits, that warms the planet, meaning another country experiences some warming as a result of the first country's emissions. That warming in another country has economic effects, either benefits or drawbacks, depending on where you are in the world. And so we can link that causal chain from emission to impact in sort of a comprehensive way and account for all the uncertainties that compound at each step. The key finding, first of all, was that we can do that. The ability to devise those relationships and show them quantitatively, I think is a key advance independent of any of the numbers. But we also showed quantitatively that the United States, China, and other major emitters are responsible for hundreds of billions or even trillions of dollars in economic losses in the warmest parts of the world, and similar benefits in the cool parts of the world where those major emitters are disproportionately situated. And so you have this globally unequal pattern of economic damages driven by the emissions of major emitters. But even independent of any of those specific numbers, the ability to draw these linkages quantitatively, we think is a key advance. Professor Catherine Hostetler has analyzed and written about the complicated relationship between environmental negotiations and development, and how this nexus often introduces competing interests at climate conferences. While undeniably bearing the brunt of climate change damages, nations in the global south have had opportunities for cooperation on finding measures to address climate-related issues. The nature of this cooperation has been subject to strains, proving that climate change can be implicated within larger geopolitical pressures. So until 2009, developing countries were largely united in the global negotiations on climate change. And largely they felt that this was a problem that they had not caused, 
that it was a problem for which rich countries really needed to take the steps that were needed to avoid climate change, that compensation was due to them for the climate change that was coming. And that was really very much a kind of universal and shared position among the 134 countries of the G77, which is the grouping of these developing countries that that continues to be really highly influential and engaged in the climate negotiations. But in 2009, when the country, when the when the world was starting to think really concretely about what does everyone have to do in the world with respect to climate change. So the first part of the global negotiations had said what developing countries had said, that developed countries needed to act first. The United States did not agree. The United States already back at the end of the 1990s was saying that big emerging powers like China really needed to start taking responsibility for their own emissions. But by and large, the world in its initial two decades of negotiating on climate climate change had said, yes, there should be a difference between the responsibilities of developed and developing countries. But then they were beginning to negotiate at the end of that first decade of the 2000s about what the rest of the world would do. And there was a very interesting division that emerged in Copenhagen in 2009, some of which came from the small island states in particular, but other highly vulnerable developing countries who said, actually, we need everybody to be taking action on climate change. We are now seeing, you know, just already that we are so vulnerable to climate change that is already coming. We don't see the kind of level of commitment by anybody that we need. We need everyone. So they didn't come out and say, you, China, you, India, you, Brazil, but in asking for everyone to take climate action, they were beginning to say that that old agreement, that there were 134 countries that maybe didn't have to do anything right away, um, was, was actually not okay with them. And so that was really the moment when the, the negotiations kind of broke open over the question of what would be the role of the big developing countries in particular and interestingly, at that point in 2009 was the first year that the basic countries, Brazil, India, South Africa, and China, actually began to regularly meet and talk about their joint positions and, and to at least inform each other of what positions they were likely to be taking in the climate negotiations. Clearly, inequalities within inequalities exist. Some countries in the global south are more susceptible to climate change than others, and so it's not the case that all developing countries will band together under a shared agenda, even amidst immense levels of vulnerability to our planet. Moreover, as some developing countries continue to develop, their economic priorities may begin to shift, making it potentially more unlikely that they may adopt policies that recognize the urgency that underlies climate change. The fact that the United States over the past few years has shifted between being more isolationist to being more internationalist has also likely contributed to any lack of global direction in combating climate change. But what we've had since 2009 then is we've, we've had the emergence of lots of different groups of developing countries that are not no longer really in agreement with each other about what needs to be done and by whom. So you have one set of countries the, the highly vulnerable ones, the small island developing states and the alliance of small island states generally, um, other highly vulnerable countries 
that have a lot of low-lying um, coastal regions or have other kinds of real vulnerabilities, including many of the African countries, which are vulnerable to things like drought and floods. Ironically, of course, both of those are impacts of climate change. So you have a block of developing countries that has actually become one of the most articulate and determined that there must be climate action by everyone. And then, not surprisingly, you have a block of developing countries, and they've sometimes joined together formally in negotiations and sometimes not, that realize that they, because they're fossil fuel producers or because they're comparatively large and, and wealthier developing countries, more industrialized, that actually the world is looking to them to, to make some difficult choices. And it's difficult for the world that large developed countries like the United States or Australia and often Canada have been so reluctant to, to really take on their own emissions and their own responsibility. There are some real laggards in the global environmental negotiations. And so, you know, the European Union has often been a leader, but it is itself divided. So it's really the world is, has really been engaged in several decades of real contention and that has, not surprisingly, then spilled over into the developing countries as well with very different levels of concern and levels of urgency about climate action and also very different levels of expected action. When you get to the basics that what most countries will commit to internationally is what reflects their balance of power at home. And this is actually an argument that I've made in some of my own research, that when I've done research on the basic countries, the big emerging powers and their role in the climate negotiations, and my arguments have often been that, in fact, that set of countries in particular, and people have made this argument about the United States as well, so some very important big emitters, that they really are primarily motivated by what happens at home, so that Brazil doesn't make significant international commitments until it actually manages to get its deforestation under control. Once it manages that, then it's willing to go and say that it will reduce its deforestation because it's already done it. And there's a, there's a certain number of countries like that. In fact, I think the Europeans are probably the single largest grouping that is influenced by what others do. And then there's a whole nother set of countries both developed and developing. So I don't think it splits along that line, but that are primarily responsive to their domestic politics. Another complicating factor that we can consider is that there can be times where implementing solutions to climate change can be done in ways that are exclusionary towards different groups of people. In such cases, a conflict may arise between the environment and equitable development. We need to ask ourselves, who benefits from investment in green technology and who is left out? In our 2020 book, Political Economies of Energy Transition, Wind and Solar Power in Brazil and South Africa, Professor Catherine Hostetler finds that in those countries, the people most affected by both climate change and climate adaptive measures are those that tend to belong to disenfranchised and oppressed communities, both historically and, of course, in the present. So when we talk about the distributional politics of climate action, the next question we have to ask is, who does climate action affect and in what kinds of ways? And in a book that I wrote recently on the development of wind and solar power in Brazil and South Africa, 
I found that there were some really important responses from ordinary citizens to their experience with wind and solar power that were important parts of the dynamics of the development of energy transition in those two countries and especially in the electricity sector. So in the case of Brazil, I found that a quarter of the communities that were supposed to be hosting wind and solar power were really very resistant to the idea that a wind power plant would be put up in their, in their backyard, as they say. Interestingly, I think it's worth pointing out that three quarters of the communities did not resist having wind power plants put into their backyard. And so it, it raises the question then of like which communities do resist and why. And that's something that we has, we've seen studied a lot in the global north, but have seen much less study of that in the global south. And in the global north, it often is an aesthetic issue or it's about, you know, how people feel about the presence of these wind turbines nearby. But it was interesting to me that the communities that resisted wind power in Brazil had a couple of characteristics that were really very different. Um, the first thing I noticed was that in many cases, the communities were making arguments about really quite specific socioeconomic impacts. We used to have access to this beach where we could do fishing, and we no longer have that access. We had a small tourist community here and tourists are no longer really able to see the things that they want to see because now land has been pulled away and is being used for windmills. And a lot of Brazil's initial, um, initial installations of wind power were done in coastal communities in particular. So these issues were quite stark there. But then when you dig in even further, one of the things that you see is that a lot of the places where there were these kinds of conflicts were actually places where there were communities, a lot of times historic slave communities, former slave communities, that had always had really quite informal and tenuous land access rights. So because they didn't formally own land, they couldn't benefit from a wind power plant going up on the land and, and lease it and receive rents and all the kinds of things that somebody who had secure land rights could do. Instead, they had had historic informal access to land that was now being taken away as the land became more valuable for this new reason to host a wind power plant. Now it had to be fenced off and secured, and they no longer had access to things that they had had informally. And so when you look, it's not just a kind of injustice of the moment or, you know, there's, there's like a historical root to it in Brazil's slavery history, um, in the fact that it left a group of people that had really uh, informal land rights. So some of the places where you don't have big protests over wind power plants, for example, are in Brazil's south, where much of the land tenure is much more secure, where you don't have this same phenomenon of these insecure communities um, looking for land rights. And so what you see is that it's a much more complex phenomenon and actually grounded in historical inequalities and things. And interestingly, there's a similar kind of dynamic that's going on in the case of South Africa. South Africa's electricity has been historically based on coal. And because of the apartheid tradition in South Africa of racial division, most coal miners are black South Africans. Many of them have very few other kinds of economic alternatives 
They were interested in the possibility of new jobs that were going to be developed. And in fact, the way that South Africa did its wind and solar planning was it asked developers to promise a certain number of jobs for black South Africans, for local communities, and so seemed to have built in some uh, some real compensation or possibilities for these these communities. But in the end, wind and solar power didn't fully develop and the jobs were not present. And the labor movement in South, in South Africa, which was really very powerful, eventually moved into the opposition to wind and solar power. And they were also opposed because all the wind and solar power in South Africa is done by private actors, where it's the public state-owned utility that builds the coal and the nuclear plants. And so in South Africa, the issue got all wrapped up in questions about should it be the public sector or the private sector that does electricity? And in the end, because of this complex set of dynamics going back again to racial issues and also questions about public versus private, you ended up having significant opposition from the South African labor movement that you wouldn't have expected in 2011 when they came out and they said, you know, we're really concerned about climate change. We'd really like to have climate action. We'd like to have an energy transition. And despite that starting point, they ended up being part of the opposition to wind and solar power. And that's the only way that South Africa can change its electricity system. Similarly, while many countries in the developing world are now producing high levels of emissions, we must also consider the role of historical emissions. Patterns of historical development have had an immense impact on where climate change is most felt today. I will say the one thing that complicates this picture a little bit is countries like India, China, Indonesia, Brazil, which are countries that are relatively warm, at least in the, in the case of like India, uh, Brazil, Indonesia. These are also very large economies that are emitting quite a bit. And so they are not necessarily, they are the, the countries that I see as sort of exceeding or complicating this pattern of rich countries emitting a lot, but not being harmed versus poor countries not emitting very much being very harmed. There are some countries that are sort of in those warm regions that themselves are also large economies and major emitters. But I think the key is that those countries have only become major emitters very recently. And so they are not the major historical contributors to global warming the way that United States and most countries in Europe are. As Christopher Callahan and Professor Catherine Hostetler have already outlined, countries in the global south, although not great emitters of greenhouse gases, are the ones that are most negatively impacted by climate change. This reality introduces an often difficult conversation on accountability. Who is accountable for our present-day woes and who shoulders the main responsibility in assisting others during times of climactic crises? What is the share of the United States in this accountability and responsibility? This fact of differentiated experiences was recognized in 2022 when the Danish government, for instance, pledged $13 million to assist countries that have suffered damages due to climate change. But we need to ask ourselves, should wealthier countries do more? Should policymakers in wealthy countries like the United States devise effective ways to assist developing countries in dealing with climate change damages? And finally, how do wealthier nations convince their own populations that financial assistance to climate risk countries is a political and perhaps even moral imperative? I definitely understand the competing imperatives 
that any negotiator has to deal with when doing diplomacy. John Kerry's job is not easy. One thing that representatives of the United States have said is that if questions of liability and loss and damage were sort of opened up, you'd get a Pandora's box situation where there would be many, many, many demands from all sides for funding to compensate for losses due to climate change. The way I see it, that is proof that it needs to happen, not that it can't happen. Uh, the fact that international climate negotiators are willing to admit that either implicitly or explicitly that their emissions have damaged many other countries and that they would be subject to liability claims if such claims were allowed implies that they know what's going on. And they know that they, at some level, should be on the hook for a lot of this funding, given the damage that the United States has done to many other countries. In my opinion, we should be making substantial payments to lower emitting countries as a result of the damage our emissions have caused. That is an opinion. The que this question is ultimately political, but I do think the very stark fact of these damages is very clear, and the moral responsibility that comes with that is not that complicated. The Conference of the Parties, often known as COP, is a convening of nations to assess the risks posed by climate change and a chance for countries big and small to underline potential ways to deal with climate-related issues. These COP meetings act as the primary decision body of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. In 2022, COP27 convened in Cairo, Egypt. At the top of the agenda for many nations was the issue of loss and damages and climate reparations. COP27 appears, at least in rhetoric, to be transformative in the way developing countries have used their platform to seek compensation for climate change damages from wealthier countries. The argument is fairly straightforward. Many developing countries will assert towards developed nations that Given your position as the largest historical emitters, it is your responsibility to financially compensate us for climate damages. Whether or not developed countries have a moral responsibility to financially assist developing nations is a matter of debate. What seems indisputable, however, is that without financial help or compensation, developing countries will not be able to cope with climate damages. Are developing nations given sufficient help to cope with climate change? Do they get what they want? Have they gotten the kinds of agreements that they need? No, not at all. And one of the places in which that is most visible is in finance, where that is one of the most consistent. So that is one area in which developing countries actually are 100% on board, that there needs to be finance coming from developed countries for all sorts of things related to climate change. If they're expected to take action to mitigate climate change, they, they need help for that. Um, and not just financial help, but also technical assistance and technology and all sorts of things that go along with that. Then you have the, the idea that if there is adaptation needed, you know, if there are changes coming from climate change, that are going to require new strains of agricultural seeds or new kinds of flood controls, that those sorts of strategies also receive finance. And then we're increasingly, and, and especially in the last couple of COPs, really having a focus on the topic of loss and damage. And that's the idea that there are going to be losses that come 
from climate change that are beyond what you can do with adaptation. And Mia Motley, the prime minister of Barbados, has been really, really articulate on these issues in the last two COPs in particular. And one of the things that she has pointed out is that the fairly small amounts of finance being moved in the climate regime itself are not actually the only place where we need to talk about finance. That the other place we need to talk about finance is with the World Bank and the other multilateral development banks. We need to talk about ordinary development finance from all sources and of all kinds. And we need to think about what it means for developing countries as they face climate change. And one of the things that she and others have pointed out is that the 20 most vulnerable countries to climate change owe something like $700 billion to the international financial system. And much of the money that they owe is to pay for past damage from hurricanes or past damage from floods or past damage from all these things. Damage that, you know, is not their fault. Damage that is going to hit them again. And there have been these arguments now that actually when we start to think about finance and climate change, that we really need to fundamentally change our understanding of the kind of finance that should be available, especially for these countries that are going to again and again face really high and irrecuperable inre costs for climate change. And it's not just money. It's, of course, also the loss of territory. It's the loss of cultural traditions. It's the loss of traditional livelihoods. It's a loss in the ability to live your everyday life the way that you want to. It's, so it's a whole dimension, a set of dimensions of loss and damage that are really at stake here. And in some ways, you know, money is absolutely critical, but money alone doesn't pay for those things. So I think some recognition of those losses is increasingly what they're asking for. And the climate regime has simply not delivered, um, hasn't even delivered on the promises made, much less the, the quantities needed. There are different ways in which developed countries can be held accountable for their historic and present-day emissions. The key, however, is to be able to strike a balance between future technological developments and past and present-day damages. Perhaps through this balance, concrete change can emerge. I do think that climate negotiations can be successful to some degree, even if funding for loss and damage is not agreed upon. Like It is genuinely a success that we have been able to negotiate an agreement on a two-degree target and commitments that, if not precisely in line with that target, at least put us on a path toward being able to achieve it, given ratcheting up ambitions. But there will remain inequities and injustices in the international climate process that do need loss and damage funding and reparations to be fully rectified. The last thing I would say is that even despite that, though, regardless of what kind of funding is contributed to future renewable energy and emissions reductions efforts, I think that is a little bit separate from, but needs to go hand in hand with funding and reparations for previous losses, which is a bit, I think it's a slightly different issue, but it has just as much of a moral claim on us as future green development, I think. For example, rural electrification is a project that can be funded in many places around the world and would deliver major economic benefits 
to people and families living in low-income places that don't currently have access to electricity. And if you can fund that electric, if you can if you can electrify a place and have the electricity come from a solar field outside a village, that's win-win. Hopefully, we could do that in a way where the economic benefits from something like an electrification project are flowing primarily to the people that have already been damaged by climate change. Like, hopefully, the prioritization and focus and targeting of those future projects could incorporate some understanding of historical loss and therefore be we those benefits could hopefully be channeled to those who need them most given previous losses and so i see that hopefully as a way that these things can be synergistic that kind of global coordination to make that happen does not seem like it's quite there yet but i would hope that that's where a place we can move in future negotiations the history of international frameworks in dealing with climate change is full of various conventions, conferences, and treaties. In 1988, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was established to carry out assessments on the impacts of climate change and to put forth possible policy formulations to enact in light of new scientific research. It was in part because of its first assessment report in 1990 that the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change could be ratified four years later thus articulating the importance of dealing with climate change from an intergovernmental level. Given the depth of development of the legal frameworks around climate change that emerged over the decades at both international and domestic levels, what is the history of American interaction with climate frameworks? How has America's role in dealing with climate change altered throughout the years? And what is the relationship between the domestic and the international in fighting climate change. The U.S. was a leader in climate negotiations for a number of decades. But interestingly, the climate change negotiations, which began in 1990, began at the same time as U.S. leadership on environmental issues globally was beginning to fade already. So there, you know, George Bush Sr., was very reluctant to go to Rio de Janeiro, which was where they signed the original climate agreement. And the U.S. did sign that agreement in the end under a fair amount of pressure from both domestic and international actors. But even in, and, and usually Democratic presidents have been more engaged with climate action and more willing to act. But, you know, even when Bill Clinton was president in the later 1990s, well, you know, the Senate voted I think unanimously or near unanimously, that the United States should not join in climate action unless major emerging powers like China in particular were also obligated to act. So that was a position that the U.S. took, you know, a decade before Tuvalu and other small island developing states took. And it was a permanent problem in the negotiations so that when George Bush Jr. comes along and actually withdraws the United States from the Kyoto Protocol, it's not a big surprise because in many ways that had already been set as an agreement under a Democratic president. And so I would, I would say that it's not a time period in which there has been a lot of leadership. Um, and there was a big expectation in the world that when Barack Obama was elected in 2009, 
was he was elected in 2008 to start in 2009, that now the U.S. would finally take climate action. And in fact, some of my research on Brazil shows that one of the reasons that Brazil passed a national climate law in 2009 because, was because they very much expected that the U.S. was about to, and that there would then be sort of trade limitations and all kinds of limitations on Brazil if it didn't like now keep up with the United States. But of course, the U.S. did not pass national climate action in 2009. And other countries of the world increasingly came to understand, and certainly it was made very evident in Copenhagen in 2009, that because of the inability to pass formal climate agreements through the U.S. Senate, not only because of Republican resistance, but also because of resistance from a significant part of Democrats, which we saw again recently with Joe Manchin and others, that that it just was not going to be possible for the U.S. to sign on to a binding national treaty. And so that's been the case. So I would say really when you look at the three decades of the climate negotiations, I don't see a single moment when the U.S. has been an unambiguous leader uh, as opposed to a drag on the negotiations. I think there are some very clear and important things that have come out of the cops that would not have been achieved without them. One of them is just... It meets every year, and if you're a country, you have to show up and talk about climate change. And it, there is no question in my mind that if we had not had these, these now three decades almost, or actually it is three decades, of negotiations over climate change, it's, there's no question but that most countries in the world would not have climate change policies. It just, it just they were forced to. They were forced to show up and talk about them and write in the Paris Agreement, their own nationally determined contributions that they were going to do, those countries would not have climate policies. Many of them would not have climate policies without the larger framework of the COP asking them to. The other thing to keep in mind, and I point this out a lot about the environmental negotiations, is that however much you can criticize them, this is one of the few places where a country of 13,000 people like Tuvalu can show up and transform the negotiations and be hugely influential, way out of proportion. Tuvalu doesn't get five minutes at the World Trade Organization. Nobody wants to know what Tuvalu has to say about security issues or is going to elect it to the UN Security Council. But in the environmental negotiations, there is a lot of room for small, small population, Gonna, gonna, gonna flood out of existence countries. I mean, there is a lot of room and power for them in these negotiations that really should not be underestimated. Now, it's a power that's built on enormous vulnerability and that has depended on them really coming to these negotiations and saying, people, we are going to drown. There will not be enough coffins to bury our dead. I mean, but the, the rhetoric around it has become kind of increasingly insistent that these are really existential issues. But partly as a result of that, then, there is room in these negotiations for, you know, objectively powerless countries to have a voice and to be heard. And I think that's not true in other international fora and it is true in this one. An issue that is urgent for Egypt will not necessarily be an urgent issue for a country like the Maldives, for instance. 
Given that domestic politics can be volatile anywhere, it's clear that international efforts to address climate change are linked to developments domestically. How do developed countries respond to various international forums and climate agreements? The 2015 Paris Agreement was heralded as transformative in the global fight against climate change. But as soon as he entered office in 2017, President Donald Trump pulled the United States out, thus clearly showing that domestic politics and pressures matter in how countries fulfill their international obligations and the priority that they place on combating climate change. Clearly, countries like the United States have been resistant to calls for loss and damage funding in international climate negotiations. Loss and damage, in this case, meaning you might think of that as back payments for historical losses, so compensation for losses suffered as a result of climate change. The United States, despite COP27, which is currently ongoing in, in Egypt, being very strongly focused on loss and damage, despite many developing countries coming into the negotiations saying this is the issue of these negotiations, countries like the United States have remained resistant to providing a dedicated, quote unquote, funding facility for loss and damage. There is an argument that in order to get climate action from the largest number of actors possible, that you have to have these international negotiations that bring everyone together and that effectively do a couple of things. On the one hand, kind of negatively, they might blame and shame, you know, so that when Donald Trump pulls the U.S. out of the climate agreement, people blame the United States in the, in the discussions, in the plenary discussions. They talk about the fact that the biggest emitter is a failure on climate change. And there's a kind of naming and shaming that can go on. But the other idea, too, is that there's a lot of worry in international agreements that there will be free riding, that you're not going to act because you see that others are not going to act. And so part of the idea of the international agreements is to sometimes show that other people are acting so that this is really then a motivation for you to do your part. And the European Union has sometimes made that explicit in the sense of this is our European Union commitment to climate action. But if a lot of others get on board, we're going to raise our ambition this much more. So it's really making explicit that kind of bargain of, you know, if everyone is on board and you can see that others are not free riding that you will as well. And that is, that's a major understanding of the way that these conferences work and that, uh, and it acknowledges that that can work either in a positive way, you see everyone else working and so you feel a need to do your part, or that it can also work in a negative way. You see a major emitter like um, the United States and, and Donald Trump withdrawing from the degree and then uh, from the agreement. And then the next thing you see is Brazil's Bolsonaro saying, oh, maybe Brazil will be out too, but then he was heavily pressured to stay in, actually, by, interestingly, by his agricultural interests who wanted to keep selling to the European Union. And, you know, there's a complex set of processes that go on, but there is a belief that those dynamics are very important at the global level in the global negotiations. The strengths and shortcomings of our present day climate frameworks raises a host of questions of what can be done to address the concerns of developing countries. Within this context, it becomes important to consider what an effective climate change framework can look like. Is it possible to have a climate change framework that is robust without addressing either climate reparations or financial support for developing countries? Could we, by addressing the needs of low-income nations that have been damaged by climate change, 
combat climate change in and of itself through funding for less fossil fuel dependencies? Is there a win-win scenario where developed nations can also benefit by compensating developing nations for climate damages? Negotiations have been a mixed bag. There have been some bright spots. I mean, Paris in 2015 was really a turning point. We, this was a little bit before my scientific career, but Copenhagen in 20, 2009 was really a disaster. It, it did not yield uh, an agreement that would reduce our emissions in any meaningful way. But, but the 2015 Paris Agreement was really a landmark in countries being willing to make individual national commitments to reduce their emissions. And, and there genuinely has been a success story over the last 10 to 15 years of bending this emissions curve where we are now no longer, it appears, on track for the worst case scenario of climate change. We are absolutely in more of a middle of the road scenario. We are not on track to achieve the 1.5 degrees Celsius target and probably not the two degree target either at the moment, but those things remain in reach. And that I think speaks to the success of the Paris Agreement and the follow-on negotiations. However, given despite that success in changing the trajectory of the global average temperature, there's a lot more going on here than just the global average temperature. And this has, has to do with floods in Pakistan, heat waves in India and in the Pacific Northwest, the drought in China this summer, combined with a heat wave that was like the longest heat wave scientists have ever observed in the history of the world. Don't quote me on that, but close to it. And so these effects are real and they are happening now and they are devastating people's lives. And as you say, we have not yet come to a consensus on the way that financial flows should account for that ongoing damage. Developing countries who are in this treadmill to develop using fossil fuels do need financial support to both repair previous damage, but also develop on a trajectory that uses less fossil fuels. And this gets at the last part of your question, which is that by facilitating these kinds of financial flows, could we be fighting climate change? I think the answer is yes. Absolutely one thing that money through something like the Green Climate Fund, which is this international funding process for climate finance, one thing that fund could achieve is funding renewable energy development and electrification and a move away from dirty economic development in many places. The United States has not committed its full share to that fund. And so absolutely further contributions would be welcome and very helpful in terms of helping future economic development proceed on a greener path than previous economic development did. What is the future of climate change negotiations and where do divisions arise between different countries? What is the current state of the United States in prioritizing climate change, both domestically and internationally? For Christopher Callahan, domestic progress has been made through the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, or the IRA, by the Biden administration in August 2022. I should be honest about my priors here, which is that I wish that we'd had the Green New Deal instead of the IRA. And that's just my, I'm putting my citizen hat here on and taking off my scientist one, just to be very clear. That being said, the IRA is a triumph. It is absolutely and it was a necessary step. I'm hoping it's going to put us on a trajectory where things will get better. To the extent that we can learn from it in the international or sort of general sense, I would hope that to some degree, the IRA, as you can tell by the name, right, the Inflation Reduction Act is named in such a way, to some degree, to appeal to one specific person, uh, but also because it was targeted, at least conceptually, at addressing 
an immediate crisis of inflation. You know, it, it, it was at least conceptually framed as we are in this sort of COVID moment with inflation and supply chain snarls and all these things. And hopefully we can take these measures that both address that immediate crisis, but also have longer term benefits. And so I would uh, potentially a lesson from this, and I'm not a political scientist. There are many who are much smarter about this than I am, but I would hope that a lesson from this is that you can take moments of crisis or moments of difficulty and design policies to both address those crises, but also have longer term returns. I would say that in many ways, the climate negotiations and climate politics have moved beyond North versus South. That increasingly what we see is a high ambition coalition and a low ambition coalition. So there's a coalition of primarily European countries, not all of them, but many of them, and then the highly vulnerable developing country states that are this high ambition coalition that really is pushing for as much climate action as possible. And then I'm afraid there's a low ambition coalition and that the United States is often there. Um, and even it's not always there rhetorically. So when Donald Trump was president and, when, you know, at, and at other times, the, the United States has had low climate ambition. And certainly it's a very fraught topic inside the United States with a lot of divisions and they're, some of them are partisan, but not all of them are partisan. Um, but, the, but the U.S., I would say, clearly has placed itself in with the, the countries that whatever the occasional rhetoric of U.S. presidents um, have had a very hard time making international climate commitments and an even harder time implementing them at home. And I think that's really regrettable because while I don't believe in international relations theories that tell us that single big hegemonic leaders can create cooperation about everything, I do think it's really a problem when your clear major cause, single major cause of a particular global problem is the United States. And the United States is one of the most reluctant to act that's just not workable in terms of global politics. It's not workable concretely because unless the U.S. significantly reduces its emissions even further, then, then the problem can't be solved. And it's also, and if it doesn't begin to provide some of the finance for other countries, it will be very hard to reach the amounts of finance needed. But it's also problematic pro politically because when there is such a very large shirker that expects everyone else to understand its domestic politics, but doesn't understand the domestic politics of other places, then we really are going to have a very hard time reaching a climate solution. So as an American, I'm very deeply distressed by this outcome, but I think it is, it's the only way that I can imagine reading this situation. Given how deeply politicized the issue of climate change has become, how can we convince people in the U.S. and elsewhere to take positive actions? One way might be by tackling other related issues, which more clearly impact everyone's lives, something called co-benefits. 
One of the preoccupations of countries in the global south when it comes to climate action has been with what the climate negotiations call co-benefits in one of the many sort of weird vocabulary terms of the climate negotiations. But co-benefits means that you do things that make sense for climate change because they make sense for other reasons. So there's a lot of evidence that China and India, for example, have taken various kinds of actions to mitigate their greenhouse gas emissions because of the terrible pollution in their large cities. And so they take the action for pollution. It happens to also be good for climate change. And so that looking for the win-win solutions, the things that are good for climate change in the long term, but that also meet sort of local constituency needs in the short term is, I think, an important kind of direction for the United States to really be, if you're interested in climate action, interestingly, in the United States, a lot of times what you want to do is to never say the word climate change, but you want to talk about the other dimensions of the issue that you're interested in. That probably doesn't add up to enough action. But if the U.S. would only do the things that produce co-benefits, it would already be a big step forward. And I think something like the IRA, the, the Inflation Reduction Act that came out from the United States recently, is an example of a, a policy that's kind of looking for those co-benefits as a way of building a broader coalition. And I think that's really the, the way forward I would see. Climate change is a global phenomenon, but the experience of it is unique to each country. Although universal, climate change is felt unequally. This is undoubtedly in part due to the fact that some countries, those that are, so to speak, less economically developed than others, lack the resources to concretely ensure against climate damages. But the crucial point is that our analysis cannot stop there. We need to identify who the greatest emitters are, both present and historical, and in what ways international climate frameworks recognize or fail to recognize the disproportionate burden of climate change placed on developing countries. Climate change-induced floods in Pakistan displaced tens of millions of people in September 2022. But Pakistan only accounts for 0.9% of global greenhouse gas emissions. This disparity between producing emissions and feeling the impact of climate change is not trivial. In fact, it perhaps underpins much of the disconnect between developed and developing countries in combating climate change. And this is where the United States comes in. The fact that the United States is the largest contributor of global CO2 emissions since 1850, accounting for around 20% of all CO2 emissions since that time, arguably places a greater onus on American administrations to assist other nations and to think more creatively of ways to tackle climate change. Although there has to be a unified effort that calls for all countries to play their part, the roles and responsibilities have to be differentiated. By offering a more complete account of climate change, from the main perpetrators to the primary victims, we can perhaps begin to move towards climate justice. Thank you to Professor Catherine Hostetler and Christopher Callahan for their analyses on this issue that begins to show how climate change in the present is tied to historical development. Refugee creation and migration are important facets of international relations, and climate change can often create the conditions of human displacement. In the next episode of Climate Change, America and the World, we'll evaluate the link between the forced movement of people across and within borders to climate change. 
This episode was produced by the LSC Phelan U.S. Center and by Mohit Malik, Anderson Tan, and Chris Gilson. We hope you have enjoyed listening to this first installment of our climate change series. Please feel free to rate and review this episode on your platform of choice. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Phelan U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. We'll see you next time.